Hey everyone, quick note up top here before we start the show. This episode deals with some heavy themes around mental health, depression, and suicidal ideation. It doesn't come in until about halfway through, and I'll give you a heads up when we get there, as well as where you can skip to if you need to. As always, thanks so much for listening. Here's the show. Previously on Serial Dater. I had unequivocal interest from Robbie in a third date, but figuring it out was getting complicated. I had planned a week-long trip to Scotland with Bill, another Fulbrighter. Bill ended up going on a date with a woman who grew up on the Isle of Skye. It was sort of adorable, even if I was a little bit jealous. This is how I came to be on Tinder the next day. I had one foot out of the city when I matched with a young man named Calvin. Well, I guess I'm gonna have to be the funny one, cause you're clearly the pretty one. Damn, I was gonna open with that. Where are you? I'm in Glasgow. Is that okay? Yes, though I've just left. I'm in Edinburgh now. And even worse, I live in the south. Really regretting not asking you to come to Edinburgh. Of course I'd come to Edinburgh. Calvin pulled me into a doorway and kissed me on the mouth. Fuck, was he good at kissing. It's one of the finest memories I have. I had zero expectations of anything more than that. Before I really knew what was going on, he had me inside his mouth. After a minute, I had us trade places and then returned the favor. We kissed once more at the ticket barrier. I sort of melodramatically acknowledged that my life would now be separated into the time leading up to meeting Calvin and the time after it. But I wasn't headed back to Brighton. No, I was heading, as I'd planned two weeks and a lifetime earlier, straight to Dorset for my third date with Robbie that very evening. The train left Edinburgh at 10 a.m., arrived at King's Cross in London at 2.45, and I had 50 minutes to traverse the city to Waterloo Station for my 3.35 train to Dorset, which would get in at 5.30. That's six hours of train time with a 50-minute London tube interlude, which I used 80% for mooning over Calvin and 20% for panicking over what I was going to do with Robbie. The start is all Maybe panic was the wrong word. It was more of a sensation of feeling completely unprepared for this kind of situation. Two interested and interesting gentlemen in 24 hours seemed worse than indulgent. It seemed gluttonous. I'm not someone who likes to binge consume special things. When the new Harry Potter books were published and people lined up at midnight to be the first one to buy and the first one to finish the books, I put myself on a restrictive diet of one chapter a night, two if I'd had a rough day. Why did these two boys have to happen simultaneously? Quick sidebar, my friend Lori has much later made the observation that often we meet people we super connect with when we're in a situationship of some description with someone else. That some element of being engaged in one romantic setup primes the mind to fall head over heels into a second romantic setup. I don't know if that's true, but if it's less of an internal mental trick and more of a fucked up thing some omnipotent deity likes to pull, then I'm 100% subscribed to this theory. I settled on needing to just be open to what, if anything, was going to happen with Robbie. I knew we were conversationally compatible, but our last date had left me unsure of where we stood, you know, in bed. My operating theory was that he wanted to take it slow or that he took a while to warm up to someone physically, which was fine. But by not saying anything, it left me thinking that there was something wrong with me. Imagine trying to cook for a friend who was, say, gluten-free, but they wouldn't tell you that and instead just refused to eat anything you cooked for them. 
Maybe Robbie didn't like to have sex before the third date or the ninth date. Whatever it was, I was pretty sure I could be cool with it. I just wanted to know where I stood. In his defense though, it's not like our first two dates were runaway trains to Bangtown. The first one had been a day date during which I came down with the fever, and the second one, which had been a sleepover date, had only been our first swing at being intimate. He had offered a disclaimer of prudishness during our fumbles, which, again, I probably should have followed up on more closely in the moment, and maybe I would have the next morning, except I came down with a second fever. But what had been a smoldering question about Robbie before I had met Calvin suddenly took on the urgency of a five-alarm fire. I was attracted to Robbie, I enjoyed kissing him, and I was eager to explore our sexual connection. With Calvin, I wanted to rip his fucking clothes off. Between the didactic quality of my interactions with Kieran, the not-yetness of my interactions with Robbie, and the random hookup or two I'd had since I'd arrived in the UK, not to mention the bellows pumping I received the night before from Calvin, I felt a pent-up libidinal energy threatening to burst out of my chest like an alien out of John Hurt. Since we'd planned for me to come to Dorset, my goal had been to use the visit to gather data on this front. That is, sex data. At the very least, I felt like I should have an idea of what kind of sex Robbie liked. If he had positional preferences, things like that. I know gays have a reputation of being kind of quick to jump into bed with one another, but it seemed like this information wasn't completely irrelevant. Besides, we'd already actually shared a bed. At the very least, if this information was being purposefully withheld, I wanted to know that. The fact that all I had was uncertainty made the whole situation unstable. Thinking about it logically, the likely answer was that he was just shy or anxious. But my inner fear demon wanted to answer the uncertainty question with my own failure. Was I just not hot enough? In a strange way, this purpose of mission made it easier to separate out the implications of my previous evening with the upcoming one. I was just on a fact-finding mission. I didn't need to decide what it all meant just yet, I just needed to get all the information in front of me. For the most part, though, I was still riding the high of my date with Calvin. Even as I resisted the urge to scream to the strangers sitting next to me on the train what had happened, I couldn't help but text a few friends poorly written slobbering accounts of the night before. My mind was in a million different places. Most specifically, I envisioned standing in the sun-soaked ticket hall of the Brighton train station, on my tiptoes waiting to see Calvin's head through the throng of arriving passengers from London. Wrapping my arms around him, kissing him. Ugh, gross, I know. Another part of me, not a logical part necessarily, but maybe let's call it logical fantasy, tried to wrestle with the implications of what this new but undoubtedly long-term relationship would have on, well, everything. I'd of course need to start making regular trips up to Scotland. Monthly? More? Come May, once my course ended at Sussex, there was nothing that required that I stay in Brighton. I could probably write most of my dissertation from Glasgow. And then, well, the being from different countries thing, that wouldn't be a problem for ages. My visa was good until January of the next year, and well, people got married on less. Again, if you were thinking that I wasn't envisioning some sort of nuptials, you are 100% nuts. I got a text from Bill while I was on the train that he had already decided to head back to Scotland the following week. You'll remember Bill had had his own amazing Scottish date. I was both impressed and a little intimidated. I felt constrained by my bank balance and also worried about looking too eager. I need to feel out his enthusiasm, I wrote to Bill, talking about Calvin, because I don't really believe he's real. 
Hashtag Scottish Unicorn. It's the awkward balance of appearing crazy and appearing interested, Bill replied. Calvin also texted me while I was on the train, further fanning the flames. Fell asleep on the train, munched my McDonald's, and I taxied to work now. I had a blast last night. Hooray! You're alive! And awake! I'm on the train now. I too had a very good time and hope we can do it again very, very soon. Double X. My constant fear when I like someone is that I'm going to push too hard too fast. Even rereading my reply right now, the second very and the two kisses hit a sour note, as if they're wildly inappropriate. I've had more than a few people, including a therapist, say to me that desperation is a huge turnoff, so once I find someone I viscerally like, I do everything I can to try and manage that. But the idea that my liking someone is somehow a liability takes its own toll. Even as I was getting positive feedback from Calvin, I was panicking that he was already slipping away. The sun had set by the time I'd got into Dorset, and in the minutes leading up to my arrival, I'd done what I could to focus in on Robbie. It was a little bit like switching from watching Game of Thrones to an episode of Friends. There was absolutely nothing wrong with Friends, but the blood had been pumping pretty hard while we were watching Game of Thrones. Still, I was looking forward to seeing Robbie. The idea of spending a couple days with him without my, hopefully, getting sick was nice. Add on the luxuriousness of the fact that he had his own one-bedroom flat and that I'd have a couple of days to just chill, and, well, I was feeling no pain. Robbie met me on the platform of the train station. If I remember correctly, he had somehow managed to find the exact spot on the platform where my coach stopped, so that when the doors opened, he was standing right there, rosy-cheeked from the January cold and smiling at my arrival. I leaned in and gave him a kiss on the lips and went to give him a hug. Careful, he said. I've done him a back. I'm Charlie Beckerman, and make sure you stretch for this spine-tingling episode of Serial Dater, UK edition. Episode 4, The Downs. I don't know if I drove home exactly how much Robbie loves boats. Robbie loves boats. In some of my very light where-are-they-now internet stalking of Robbie, I found a blog about boats. I'm talking photos of cruise ships from multiple angles, discussion of their profiles, descriptions of ships that are handsome if conservative. As I'm reading through his blog now, I'm sort of redeveloping my crush on him a little bit. I had known these kinds of people exist for trains, and I suppose in an even more mainstream way for vintage or racing cars. The fact that it was cruise ships took a moment to acclimate to, but ultimately was no weirder, and in some ways was even more charming. One of the things that had made the timing of my trip to Dorset somewhat nimble, let's say, was that Robbie had decided to go with a friend on a weekend cruise, and that he had arrived back into Dorset just a few hours before I was due to get in. Somewhere between Robbie's disembarking from the cruise ship and waking up from a post-cruise nap, he'd done something to his back, and now was gingerly making his way up the stairs that led to the overpass over the tracks. I can take your bag, he offered. No, you can't, I said, touched by the gesture, but also trying to do the quick math on what Robbie's state meant for my visit. By the time we got down to the platform on the opposite side, I'd had to concede at least one point, any sexual fact-finding would be entirely unphysical. 
As we made our way from the station to Robbie's flat, a 10-minute walk, Robbie told me about the cruise, about how bad he felt about his back. I probably went on at some length about how good a time I'd had in Scotland, leaving out, clearly, the previous night's adventures. But in my mind, I suddenly felt weirdly, selfishly let down. My plan to try and broach the topic of where we were sexually felt suddenly and perversely unkind. Bringing up sex to someone who's physically incapable of having it at that moment seemed cruel, Kind of like asking someone who loves steak but who's had to give up red meat for health reasons to describe in detail the flavor of a filet mignon. I suppose there is a way in which I could have barreled into the sex question and just seen what happened. And perhaps, in the alternate universe where I hadn't met Calvin, I would have been more patient, more calm, more chill. Instead, I was a can of soda that Calvin had shaken vigorously and then handed to Robbie, unopened. Robbie's flat was extremely tidy. It perfectly described Robbie's ambitions to Scandinavian minimalism, balanced with his charming, personable Englishness. He had cultivated a living space that someone might actually enjoy living in. Posters were hung with pictures of cruise ships, naturally. A guitar sat idly by in the corner. There were plants and throw blankets and framed photographs. It was a grown-up's apartment, and I found myself kind of impressed. We dropped my bags in his sitting room. There was something inherently odd about showing up for a night or two with a roller suitcase, but I had been on the road for a couple weeks. And deciding we were famished, we headed out. Robbie lived pretty close to the city center, and as cities go, it wasn't that different from Chichester, the town where Robbie and I had had our first date. After walking through a strange mall, we emerged out onto a fairly pleasant pedestrian area, lined with a typical assortment of shops and restaurants. At this point, now five months deep into my year in the UK, Much of England still had a thrilling quaintness to it, an adorability that I couldn't help but coo at. We walked to a Pizza Express, which sounds like a pizza place you'd find in a strip mall, but is actually a fairly respectable chain restaurant, where we ate pizza and drank wine. The conversation continued much as it had. I really couldn't hear enough about boat building. I asked him what he'd been doing at work lately, and he was telling me about a big yacht they were building. Among the many, many things that needed to be checked was the volume of the engines in the different parts of the ship. The way they test this? They go out onto the open sea, open the throttle, all the way, I don't really know ship terms, and then Robbie would walk around from room to room with a decibelometer. Okay, there's definitely a better word for that. I don't remember exactly what the solution was for when the engines were too loud. Put more stuffing in the wall? Build another room onto it? But Robbie was telling me that he actually hated the task. The boat was going so fast, so you have to hold on. And the engines really are very loud when they're going flat out. So it's just not nice. He told me about another thing which has stuck with me visually. Some of the really big, fancy yachts have atriums in the middle. What? And another thing that they have to check is the balance of the ship, which they do by dropping a plumb line down the center of the atrium and seeing if it hangs straight. I don't know why, but I like that image so much. A multi-million dollar ship whose seaworthiness is, in part, measured by a lead weight tied to a piece of string. We finished dinner and meandered around for a bit. Robbie took me down to the water to point out a couple of the ships he had worked on. It was a lovely walk, but in a weird way, we were regressing from our date in Brighton. In Chichester, it being the first date, we weren't engaging in any PDA, but in Brighton, there was hand-holding, walking arm-in-arm. Now, in Dorset, we weren't doing any of that. I don't quite know whether to ascribe this more to Robbie's injury, or to the fact that Dorset isn't the gay mecca that Brighton is. 
I thought we might find a pub somewhere, but also I knew that feeling of being out and about when your back was acting up. So I offered to head back to his place, and he accepted. The only thing he was good for, really, the only thing anyone in that state is good for, if we're being honest, was watching television. Have you seen Gavin and Stacy? He asked me. I had not. Gavin and Stacy is a BBC comedy about two people who meet online, one of whom lives in Wales and the other lives in Essex. For those whose British geography isn't current, those two places are essentially on opposite ends of the country widthwise, which, okay, not quite as bad as Brighton and Glasgow, but still pretty rough. They meet in London for a date, hit it off beautifully, and then spend the rest of the series negotiating their inter-county relationship, bringing their families, as well as their best friends, one of whom is played by James Corden, into the whole mess. It's actually a really charming series, though the Welsh comedians sort of steal the show. In particular, Ruth Jones, whose performance alone is worth the price of admission. All right, Stace, what's occurring? I need your advice, I do. Go for it. Should I tell Gav about the other engagements? Or should I just leave it? Thing is, things are going so lush, if I tell him, it might just wreck everything. And it's not that big a deal, is it? That depends. This reminds me of a very similar situation I was in with my second husband, Clive. I was faced with a dilemma, whether to lie or not to lie, and I chose to tell the truth. And what happened? He died. Fighting squad. Terrible way to go, Stace, and I wouldn't like to see it happen to you. <sighs> Smugglers we were. If it weren't for my relationship with John Prescott, I'd still be in that jail right now. So, yeah, in answer to your question, I'd say no. Don't tell him. But even an evening on the couch, which, fuck, isn't that mostly what I've been wanting all this time, felt a little hollow. Whether it was my perception or Robbie was just in so much pain, I'm not sure. But I got the distinct impression that he didn't want to be touched. It was hard for me to channel all of my different competing feelings. Frustration, I think, at having been looking forward to this visit for a while and having it turn out a little disappointingly. Fear of the idea that maybe somehow I wasn't doing what I should be doing. Guilt that I had a brain still full of Calvin. We went to bed early, which was fine. I think we were both tired for different reasons. But lying in bed didn't really bring any peace or comfort. I tried to see if I could attempt a little physical contact, something sweet, not sexy, but even slight movements elicited winces of pain from him. I felt for him, absolutely, but also I felt in the way. And in the strangeness of being in a new bed with a new person, I barely slept at all. In the morning, Robbie decided not to go to work. He seemed to be a bit perkier, but was also in enough pain still that he made a doctor's appointment. We walked back into the city center to find coffee and breakfast, but as we walked past some locals, some parents barking at their kids and their kids yelling back, Robbie started talking about how much he didn't like living there. These people are just so awful, he said. I can't stand them. He talked about how he couldn't wait to get out of Dorset. Walking through the city center, we passed a shop called This Is It, and I was wondering if this was the universe trying to send me a sign, and what it might be saying. Halfway through the day, I started to realize that I wasn't having fun. The sweet, charming Robbie of Chichester and Brighton had, in his incapacity, turned into kind of a grump. Later, I would write to Fati that I couldn't tell if this was me viewing him through Calvin-colored glasses, or if it was something else. At some point that afternoon, I remembered a conversation I'd had with my friend Jessica years earlier, something her therapist had said. 
you don't really know a partner until you've spent a sick day with them. It wasn't just sick days, but the idea was that our true selves aren't the person we bring to the first date or the first sleepover or any of it. The real person is who we are when we're so distracted by being sick or in pain that we forget or simply don't have the energy to put on the mask. And a thrown out back is one of the trickier sick days to have. You're in pain, and it's sort of unignorable pain, but also you're not contagious, so there's no real reason to secret yourself away. Another thing occurred to me later on, that one of the reasons I might have been seeing this other side of Robbie was because he was feeling more comfortable around me. Worse, I worry that a more Robbie-minded version of myself would have easily found sympathy for him in his predicament. Instead, I felt itchingly like I wanted to leave. Plus, also, the Calvin situation hadn't just stopped. He was texting me while I was in Robbie's flat. That part I felt particularly horrible about, because all I wanted to do was respond. I did my best to ignore his texts while I was in Robbie's bed, but at one point I did sneak out into the hallway to return one, keeping vague my location and activities. It was when Robbie decided to call the plumber to fix his shower that I decided I should probably go. I could see his reasoning. He was using one of a few days off to recuperate for his back, and had been meaning to get the plumber in there anyway. But in a weird way, it made me feel even more ancillary than I had been feeling before. We spent most of the day hanging out on the couch while the plumber tinkered with the shower, but I felt as if we had to pretend to be, quote, just friends. I decided not to stay a second night. My reasons were several. First and foremost, I just felt like I was in the way. Also up there, I had just come from first date paradise land, and now I was in weird third date semi-domestic reality. And not cuddling by the hearth domestic, but moody, grumpy, not-in-the-mood domestic. There was another thing lurking back in there somewhere. I think I was still a little upset that Robbie hadn't wanted, or at least hadn't offered, to stay with me when I fell ill in the middle of the night on our second date. Yes, yes, things were different. Sickness versus injury, shared house versus one-bedroom apartment, second date versus third. But also, they weren't. I just needed some goddamn comforting, and I didn't get it. Robbie was disappointed when I said I was leaving, and we spent the last few hours I was there sitting on the couch together watching Gavin and Stacy. At first it was a little awkward because the plumber was there, but after he left, we came as close as we did to intimacy during that visit. It was actually kind of sweet there for a little bit. When it was time for me to leave, I kissed Robbie goodbye, and for the first time that visit, things started getting a little heated as we made out. I could stay if you wanted to fool around a bit, I found myself saying. No. I don't think so, he said. Again, was it his back, or was it something else? Was it me? Whatever it was, I left. I told him he didn't have to walk me back to the station, so we said goodbye at his doorway. I felt weird about it, but there was a little relief at not needing to stay in the apartment another day. I remember I left the door open for hanging out again at some point. It may have come off as perfunctory, I suppose. I wanted earnestly for this not to be the last time I saw Robbie, but also, there wasn't the same urgency there anymore. I'm the boldest light in the brightest day. I keep my dreams inside and my fears at bay. Back in Brighton, in the sanctuary of my own room, and without a Robbie or anyone else to stop me, I texted Calvin. Just to warn you, this might sound a little familiar. I don't know if we want to be the kind of people who say goodnight, but I thought I'd try it and see how it went. Good night. 
It's funny, I don't remember being this cognizant of having had done the same thing with Calvin as I'd tried with Kieran, but it's hard not to notice your dating patterns when you're writing about them all at once. I tried to hide my phone somewhere far out of reach so that I could resist the urge to stare at it until he responded. So I was kind of startled when it started ringing. Uh, hi, I said. Let me take a moment to wax romantic about love songs. In season one, I invoked the power of music as a vessel for expressing emotions. I made you guys listen to me sing, and for that, I apologize. I'm not planning on doing it again, though I still have a few more episodes, so anything could happen. But something was happening to me in the afterglow of the Calvin explosion that was new and a little unnerving. I was turning into the kind of guy who would hear a love song being played and go misty-eyed and say, that is so true. And not in a, oh, hey, artist, you've accessed the universal quality of the pleasure and pain of love kind of way, but in a, oh my god, you're literally singing about my life kind of way. Songs that I had always sort of nodded my head to absentmindedly when they came on the radio were now deeply personal, in a way that, if I thought carefully about it, should have been creepy, but because I was floating on a cloud of rose-infused fairy dust felt just, you know, so true. My playlist was a smorgasbord of gushy ballads like I Believe in a Thing Called Love by The Darkness, Beatles hits like She Loves You, yeah, 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 she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. feverish tracks like Such Great Heights by The Postal Service, and Quartz by TV on the Radio. I wanted music that put its hands under my armpits and lifted me off the ground. I listened to the cover of Elton John's Your Song from Moulin Rouge more than a few times. In my mind, this whole honeymoon period lasted a while, but I suppose now is as good a time as any to make the following observation. Time is weird, yo. As I re-examine with excruciating detail the events of the coming months, time, in my mind, has an unpleasant and disorienting accordion-like quality, expanding and contracting in various hideous ways. As I struggled to keep a steady pace with time, I was also struggling with another problem, the give and take. How much was too much? How much was too little? I think in some damaged part of my mind from past serious dating experiences, I learned that, especially if I liked a guy, I was going to ask too much of him too soon. One of my earliest forays into dating, with a law student I met at a friend's house, involved a situation where things had seemingly been going pretty good. He came to my birthday party, we went to a Halloween dance together, and then suddenly, things dissolved in my hands when I started wanting to see him on the regular. He stopped texting me for a stretch, and then when he resurfaced and I asked him not to just ghost on me, he ghosted for good. This was in 2007, so I don't even know if the term ghosting had been invented yet. Relaying the story to a male friend of mine, he looked at me and said, You can't say that to him. Can't say what? That I don't want him to just not text me? Exactly, he replied. 
It seemed crazy to me that this was how human beings in the 21st century would communicate, or not. But I think that early disappointment imprinted itself onto my general sense of how much I could ask from a guy I was into. That is, less than I wanted to. Which is why when Calvin called me on the telephone, I was not in any way prepared. I was used to needing to gruelingly pursue the guys that I really liked. I had no idea how to act when someone I liked pursued me back. Is everything okay? Was my first question. Yeah, he said, casually, as if we talked on the phone all the time. I just hate texting sometimes, and wanted to hear your voice. To the best of my recollection, I was already on my bed, mostly lying down, which was good, because otherwise I probably would have just fallen over. Oh, I just wasn't expecting you to call. He paused for a second. Is it okay that I called? Absolutely. We talked mostly about his day, which he'd spent finishing unpacking. He told me a bit more about his new flat, a stone's throw from the Kelvin Grove Museum, where, barely a week ago, Bill and I had marveled at the very strange stuffed animals in their collection. His flatmates were somehow connected to a brewery. Maybe they were heirs to the brewery? And so there was a refrigerated keg of beer with a tap always ready to go in the sitting room. He told me the name of the pub he worked at, which I promptly, maddeningly forgot. I kept my activities and whereabouts vague since that very morning I had woken up however chastely, in someone else's bed. The call lasted only 20 minutes or so. By the end, I was still so discombobulated that I think I initiated the hang-up. I guess I better get to bed, or something like that. In my recollection of it, he sounded a bit disappointed, but that could be wishful thinking and or projection. Still, the phone call had had an exciting, if not slightly unsettling, effect. Whereas previous guys I'd seen rewarded my eagerness to text with slow and cryptic responses, Calvin seemed willing in most instances not only to see my bet, but raise me. My poor self-doubting brain was not calibrated for this enthusiasm parody. But as strange as all this was, it was also hideously, delightfully familiar, in the sense that this was what everyone else had had all this time. Hanging out with my becoupled friends only to have them excuse themselves to take a phone call with their significant other, or to have them check out of the conversation to answer a text, would often come with an unpleasant twinge of jealousy and sadness. But now I sort of got it. Here was this person who made your vision go all wavy and your heart flop around in your chest who wanted to talk to you. How could you ignore them? There was another problem with the familiarity as well. It was so unbelievably easy for me to want it again. As good as the phone call felt, I wanted it again on the next night. This time, I called him. Wow. Hello? he said, sounding genuinely surprised. In the background, I could hear other people. Sorry, are you busy? I asked. Noises came over the line of him standing, walking, shutting a door behind him. No, just our friends. We're about to go dancing. Dancing, on a Wednesday night. Oh, 24-year-olds. Apologies to all the 24-year-olds who don't go dancing on a Wednesday, and all the 32-year-olds who do. I steeled myself for Calvin to quickly excuse himself, but instead he just kept talking to me. For an hour and 15 minutes. Where are your friends? I asked recklessly at some point. They went ahead. As if this was a normal occurrence. Maybe I should have expressed to him that it wasn't. That I wasn't used to guys passing up their friends to just hang out and talk to me. He asked about my day. I talked about trying to write. At some point, the conversation took a turn and we started talking about sex. We'd covered some stuff during our date, in a sort of casual bantery kind of way, But on the phone, we got into specifics, what we liked and didn't like, what we'd be interested in trying with each other. He was, at 24 years old, more experienced than I was, 
but didn't seem to care about the differential. We'll figure it out, he said, as if he were a teacher confident that I could bring up my grades before the end of the semester. For all the heady excitement of the phone call, though, there was also a bigger fish on the line. What's your schedule like next week? I asked casually, though probably my anxiety carried across the line no problem. It changes every week, he said, which, in retrospect, sounds like more of a dodge than it registered as in the moment. I realized somewhere in there that all I really wanted was to know when we were seeing each other again, and since that would necessarily include tickets and planning and such, that the sooner I knew when that would be, the sooner I could just calm the fuck down. At least, I think. Finally, I had to let him go, but as I hung up the phone, I felt weirdly sad and bereft. In a panicked rant to Fatih, I tried to outline the reasons. The first was that in our early chat and on our date, there had been a lot of casual throwing about of proclamations of feeling. Our discussions about how gross we could be as a couple, the excellent kissing, the immediacy with which we would see each other again. But on that call, for the first time, I started to feel like maybe while I had happily, eagerly stepped off the ledge, thinking that he was holding my hand, he was in fact back on terra firma, looking at me with a look that said, Oh, were you serious? And then chuckling pityingly as I plunged off the cliff. The second reason was at least as base and therefore easily identifiable which was that he seemed to be a lot more sexually experienced than me. I suppose that our age differential played a bit of a role in exacerbating my feeling of insufficiency, but the reason this got me down was because I started having an irrational fear that he might only be interested in sex. And listen, I was freaking delighted that he was adventurous sexually and that he wanted to get adventurous with me, but it threw all these warm, fuzzy feelings into a strange place. Even worse, I feared that soon he'd discover just how far behind him I was, and then decide that I was not up to the task of adventuring. For the record, with the cold, rational light of retrospect, I don't think I was that far behind him. Fatih helped dispatch this reason quickly, at least on a rational level. Look, she said, thinking about sexual experience is a lose-lose from any angle. It's impossible to have the right amount of experience. You're either a prude or a whore, and there's just no winning. The third reason the call got me down was that it reiterated the difficulties of the logistics of living so fucking far apart. In the first heady hours and days after our date, the task of arranging travel to see one another seemed to me a pleasurable challenge, but one easily overcome. But I was a freewheeling student with minimal obligations. He worked a full-time service industry job. On some level, I knew that one of the things I was mad at was my own inability to exercise any control over my emotions. I hated that I was left feeling sad after the phone call, because, as I said to Fatih, there was nothing wrong with it. It was lovely. Ultimately, operating in a space of liminality without any surety of whether I was going to see him again was driving me up a wall. Our first call was on January 19th, our second on January 20th. On January 21st, I'd sent him a photo I'd taken of the West Pier, a burnt ruin of a Victorian pier that was mostly destroyed in 2003 and now sits in the sea looking creepy and cool. It was a place he'd mentioned both on our date and in our text messages as a particular spot he'd like to engage in hashtag more kissing. I got no response from him. On January 22nd, I spent the day in mourning, despite trying as hard as I could to remain optimistic. All I can say in my defense now, since I do feel a bit crazy looking at how quickly I went from enthralled to embattled, was that this had been a particularly intense connection. Up until then, we had been chatting a lot, And to this point in our knowing each other, things had always only gone one way. Up. This first denouement was simultaneously depressing and distressing, and I didn't know what it meant. 
I was so ready for him to be hashtag over it that even the slightest signal that that might be happening, I took to be a death sentence. I'm sure part of the strain stemmed from also having to curate my internal strife and my external presentation. I felt miserable inside, but also knew that I shouldn't be feeling miserable, and so tried to muster a reasonable visage of rolling with itness. That weekend, Nathan and Tara were driving into London and offered to give me a lift, which I took them up on. By this point, I still hadn't heard from Calvin, and I was feeling fairly miserable about it, even though I was still trying to put on a good face. Tara made the point, which I found strangely comforting, that if nothing else, it was a bit odd for him to be, quote, so full-on at first, and then go so quiet. If I did any work on that London trip, I don't remember it. The decision about what to do next loomed large in my mind. Call or chill? I stayed that night with Charlotte in Denmark Palace, I'm sure making her ears bleed with my whinging. Finally, the next day, I decided I just had to call. Either he would return the call or he wouldn't. Charlotte and I walked to Peckham Rye Park, and while she sat in a cafe, I called Calvin. Hello, handsome, he said sleepily into the phone. It was 2 p.m. Hi, I said, unsure of what the right emotion to have was in that moment. What's up? Nothing, he groaned. I'm at my parents. Went out last night. Now I'm hungover in bed. Oh, well, I can call back. No, no, he said. I could hear him rolling over in bed. I like talking to you. And just like that, I was back. I felt whatever muscles in my chest that had contracted in distress over my heart loosen, the sky brighten. As I trudged around the rain-sodden park, we fell right back into our previous patter. Do you want a kilt? I asked at some point. I'm choosing to remember that I didn't ask out of the blue, that it had come up in conversation. Of course I do, he said. Do you like wear it at weddings and things? I was clearly asking generally. Well, at our wedding, I'm going to wear a white wedding dress. Couldn't have caught me more off guard than if he'd sprung out of the bushes. Our wedding? Sure. He said it as if it was inevitable. I stopped to imagine him in a white wedding dress, and I had to admit I didn't hate the look. Great, can't wait. I did at some point screw up the courage to say that, even though it didn't make sense, I was anxious to see him again. And I felt like, while I didn't want to put too much pressure on the situation, that I would like to get plans squared away. I was prepared for him to say he wasn't coming, or it wouldn't be able to happen, or something. Instead, he said, I'm busy the next couple of weeks, but what about February? Sure, February is good, I said. Just let me know when and I'll make sure my room isn't a disaster. I don't know if I can do the first weekend in February, but maybe the second. The second weekend in February in 2016, in case you don't have a calendar in front of you, was Valentine's Day. I felt it would have been irresponsible not to point this out to him. Okay, I said, but you know that that's Valentine's Day. Someone with a better sense of pacing would have just stopped there and let him respond, but instead of pacing, I have anxiety, so I prattled on. We don't have to, like, you know, do anything for it, though we could, like, really do it. I mean to say, I know it's a bit of a weird time for Valentine's Day, I don't even know if you're into Valentine's stuff or not. He didn't seem to balk at my word vomit. We'll figure it out, he said. Okay, I said, trying to get my brain to be rational and effective about the whole situation. Just, you don't have to come for Valentine's Day, but if you say you're going to come for Valentine's Day, then you actually have to come on Valentine's Day. I'm coming, I'm coming. When we hung up, we left it that he was going to figure out his work schedule and book tickets. I felt restored. Not just restored, I felt exuberant. He was coming. 
And not only that, but it sounded like for the first time in my life, I was going to spend Valentine's Day not alone with a pint of ice cream, but with a boy. On the ride back to Brighton with Nathan and Tara, they were excited for me. Do you think the two of you would be willing to do a photo shoot for me? Tara asked. I need some pictures of gay weddings for my portfolio. The suggestion was made casually, but my head spun. Let's wait until he actually books the tickets, I said. That evening, he proceeded to like about 50 of my Instagram photos, and even singled out a few of his favorites, sending me screen grabs, one of me at my senior prom, another of me angrily eating an ice cream cone. I've been Googling you, he said. Well, that's terrifying. You've quite the IMDb page. For the record, I do not, at the moment anyway, have an IMDb page, though I think he was just referring to what shows up when you Google me. In early 2016, this would have mostly been my own website, Serial Dater 1, a smattering of comic book stuff from my time at Marvel, and a few mentions of Fashion It So, the internet's preeminent and possibly only Star Trek The Next Generation fashion blog, which I co-write with my friend Anna. Having a pretty healthy ability to self-diminish, these things struck me as small potatoes, and so I interacted with Calvin's observations awkwardly, which he seemed to remember from our date. We spoke about this, actually. How you determine how one is accomplished. I mean, it's all perception, right? I responded. Kim Kardashian is technically accomplished. I did not mean to slight Kim, she was just who was at hand. I've not watched her show, but from what I've seen on Facebook, she does seem rather hilarious. Hair pulling, he said a moment later. For a second I thought he was talking about Kim still, but then he sent an image of a woman pulling her hair and the word trichotillomania next to it. Not nails, like I thought. He was referencing the scientific term he'd been trying to remember about me picking at my hangnails. For the record, since that conversation, I had been making a more concerted effort to stop than I had in years. Did you make that for me? I asked. I appreciate how tech-savvy you think I am, but I totally stole it from Google Images. I'm more interested in your other talents anyway, I wrote back. I'm known for my feng shui. You mean your fine shui? I couldn't help but hit back. That ended our chat for the night. Two days later, he called me and we spoke on the phone for an hour and 38 minutes. We continued to bat about future plans as casually as if we were already in a deeply committed relationship. We talked about going camping in the Scottish Highlands and about going to baseball games in New York. The Mets, of course, not the Yankees, I said. Why not? Because the Yankees are jerks. Three days after that, he called me and we spoke for 45 minutes. Somewhere in here, on one of these phone calls, he dropped the first iteration of a question that would come back to haunt me later. Do you write about me? I searched his voice for more information. Was it curiosity? As if I were an artist and he was just casually wondering if I'd ever drawn him? Or was there an edge of uncertainty there, an uneasiness? It was also weirdly, and perhaps tellingly, the only question I struggled with how to answer. All other questions I answered readily and, I think honestly, as if he'd taken a can opener to my brain and just popped the lid. Still, it seemed like a test of one sort or another, and not knowing what I was being tested on, I tried to think of the answer that would be most defensible in court. The truth was, I had done some writing about him, and it was shitty first draft type stuff. The earliest scribblings of a short story, something inspired by him but not really about him. Though, I'd be lying if I said that the character he inspired didn't look and speak and act an awful lot like him. 
It existed because what I do is right, and when something as big as Calvin happens to me, of course I write about it. Maybe that was the answer I should have given. Instead, I said, sure. I guess on some level, I knew I wouldn't be able to lie about this. But it's not anything I'd ever show anybody. As soon as I said that, I immediately feared it was the wrong thing. I mean, it's just not very good. I write a lot of stuff that isn't very good. He seemed to take this answer in stride, but didn't betray any more information about where the question was coming from, or how he felt about my answer. On January 31st, three days after that call, I sent him a mushy text message that I sort of regret and am too proud to reproduce here. The upshot was something along the lines of, holy shit, I can't believe you're going to be here soon. I was having trouble believing it, not because I doubted him, but because I doubted myself, and thought perhaps by simply stating this excitement plaintively, a little confirmation that said mushy feeling was mutual would go a long way to helping me believe it. He did not respond. On February 1st, I spent all day hoping that I might hear from him. There's the smart part of my brain, I wrote to Fatih, that's like, chill dude, if he wanted to bail, he could have done it way earlier. Sure, Fatih said, we love that guy, he's so right and logical. And then there's the part of my brain, I went on, that's like the purple dude from Inside Out. For those of you unfamiliar, the purple guy from Inside Out was fear. And he's ready to burn this motherfucker to the ground. I stayed up late watching the results of the Iowa caucus come in and texted Calvin to see if he wanted to chat. I watched long enough to see Ted Cruz claim victory, with Donald Trump nipping at his heels, a nauseating sight to be sure. No reply from Calvin, which did not help my nausea any. On February 2nd, in my desire to drown my feelings of insecurity with boldness and brashness, I called Calvin, but there was no pickup. I attempted to remain upbeat in my voicemail message, Panicking? Who's panicking? Everything's fine, but was fairly sure that my voice betrayed me. On February 3rd, I started to feel despair again. It had been five days since I had heard from him, either phone or text. I realized that this actually isn't a very long period of time in the real world. I guess all I can say is that I wasn't really living in the real world at this point. Without any info to the contrary, my old fear machine kicked into gear. The silence meant he was over it, right? If we revive the master of none theory of percentages, I had thought we were both at 100%. I certainly was. But I believed that this lack of response was evidence to his dropping percentage. Even if I could logically consider, and for the record I did not do this, that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, because the whole thing already felt so unreal, the lack of a constant reminder that it was real allowed my brain to frantically pull the whole thing to pieces. By the way, if you're one of the people who'd rather skip over the heavy stuff, and that's totally fine, you should pause here and fast forward to 50 minutes and 7 seconds. The despair had a scary quality to it, one that I wasn't sure I had felt before. The last time I had felt anything close to this had led me to my therapist in New York. I needed to talk to someone, not a friend, a professional. But mental health in the UK is not like it is here, The NHS covers therapy for people who are in very dire straits. As one British friend described it to me, you have to be ready to jump off a building in order to get help. I wasn't ready to jump off a building, but I was thinking an awful lot about the building. This may be the hardest part of this whole experience for me to talk about. Partially because it seems melodramatic, partially because it sounds almost silly when it's spoken aloud, 
and partially because the sad part of myself is not only a part of myself I don't share with other people, it's also a part of myself I don't even like. But here's the real truth. Up to that point, Calvin was the latest, and maybe greatest, guy who I had developed an intense, and sure, maybe premature, attachment to. And despite this, he seemed to feel that it was okay to let me languish in uncertainty. This, amidst a group of friends that was becoming increasingly paired up, made me feel more and more like some kind of dysfunctional outlier, a faulty unit. Having been lifted so high during our date in Scotland, only to be dropped so far on the follow-through, made me not want to be alive anymore. I have trouble with the word suicidal. It's a little too much like an identification. I don't think of myself that way, even though I have at times thought about it. I should say for the record, and hopefully to reassure my family and friends, I have never acted on these feelings, or even taken any steps towards acting on them. Outside of my anxious hangnail habit, I do not engage in self-harm. And when I'm not feeling down, it's sort of like I don't even know who that despairing person is. I react to my own thoughts the way that sassy gay friend reacts to Ophelia. Hamlet loves me no more! So we kill ourselves? Kill ourselves? This is Hamlet we're talking about, okay? Hamlet! There is something rotten in Denmark, and it's his piss-poor attitude. He has been gone. Sorry, defraying intense discussions with humor is sort of a knee-jerk reaction for me, but that clip is too good not to include. Moreover, this sense of incredulity towards my own intense sadness made it even harder to talk about. In fact, at this time, I'd never spoken about it to anyone, not even to my therapist back in New York. Even just saying the word itself feels dangerous. I think one reason I didn't say it out loud to my therapist was some fear that it would trigger a bunch of actions, like she'd have to report me or commit me. Because the word is so loaded, it becomes difficult to have a rational, open conversation with anyone about it. I guess I'd try and play myself on the receiving end of such a declaration. I'd want to be sure that my friend had help, I'd want to make sure that they weren't hurting themselves. And yet, by not readily expressing these thoughts, I ended up isolating myself even further. How do you express to someone that you're having dark, sad thoughts without making them feel like they need to sound the alarm? All of which is to say, if you're one of my friends and you're listening to this podcast, please know that I was doing everything I could to hide these feelings from the people around me who cared about me. Come near to me now. On February 4th, in search of some kind of help, I went to the Buddhist Meditation Center in Brighton. I'd sort of had my eye on Buddhist meditation since I'd read Sarah Eccles' It's Not You, 27 Wrong Reasons You're Still Single, which I referenced in the first iteration of Serial Dater. Much of Eccles' ethos had been sourced in Buddhist meditation, and reading her book had been enormously helpful to me when I'd struggled with these feelings before. I should say, I hadn't given up on Calvin just yet, but I was starting to worry that I may have to, and part of my fear was that I might not be able to withstand the blow when it came. For the a couple of times a month, the Buddhist center had an open class for new students, and I went hoping for anything. The center was located in a walled compound a few blocks from the seafront, The gardens were serene, and the front entrance of the center felt like the lobby of a nice yoga studio. A pleasant woman took my name, phone number, and email address before handing me a small program and directing me towards the main sanctuary. 
It reminded me a little disappointingly of the sanctuary at my synagogue growing up. This wasn't an inherently bad thing, but I think I had been looking for something other than religion. Which, yes, I agree that this is slightly foolish considering that Buddhism is literally a religion. There were several statues of the Buddha, fat and happy, skinny and placid. They varied in size from smaller than a corgi to larger than a hippo, but they were all the same lusty, buttery golden color. A blonde woman sitting a couple of chairs over from me leaned in and said hello. What brings you to the center? she asked. I just was hoping to check it out. I've been going through some stuff and have heard about meditation and that it can help. The idea of telling her what I was actually doing there seemed impossible. What about you? She shrugged. I used to be a regular, but I fell off, trying to get back into it. This was probably the most reassuring thing I heard all night, that Buddhists were just as prone to lapse as the rest of us. The teacher came in, a white guy in orange robes and wearing small oval spectacles. We all rose when he walked in and sat after he sat. We recited a prayer together, which felt way too much like synagogue. And then he began the lesson. I can't remember the exact content, but the basic assertion was in line with what little else I knew of Buddhism, that suffering is caused by our thoughts. Thinking back on it now, I feel like he must have taken a more nuanced position than this, but at the time, I remember finding this all extremely unhelpful. Stop thinking seemed about as useful a solution for a human being as Nancy Reagan's Just Say No was for drug addicts. Rather than helping, I found myself feeling worse. The teacher, who seemed kind and serene, spoke in a tone that I found strangely patronizing, like he was talking to a room full of slightly stupid children. Towards the end of the lecture, he asked if there were any questions, and I had this vivid image of my question sitting on my lips like a tiny person, its legs dangling down over the edge of my mouth. What does the Buddha have to say about heartbreak? I wanted to ask. But I knew that if I asked it, I'd start crying. And then people would crowd around me, the nice blonde lady would be first, and they'd want to stay with me until I was okay. And my thing was, I might not be. As the lesson ended and we stood to leave, the blonde lady asked me if I'd be back. I don't know, I said noncommittally. On February 5th, I sent a text saying, Hey, can you send me your arrival and departure info? I'm trying to get a handle on when I can do schoolwork and when we'll be busy fucking our brains out. See how fun and spunky I was still being? I'm going colder in this startling winter That night, I gave up on Calvin. I bought a bottle of Spanish table wine from the grocery store that cost £3.50, which I nicknamed my sadness wine. I texted one of my roommates, a French sound engineer who would put up with my bad French speaking and would get me stoned if I asked him to. I told him that I was pretty fucking sad, and if he was up for watching me get drunk and being sad, that I'd appreciate the company. In case anyone is curious, the treatment for temporary relief of a broken heart is one bottle of sadness wine, between two and five hits of weed from a vaporizer, and two Melissa McCarthy comedies, in this case, The Heat and Spy. One thing that is not included in this is your smartphone, which can have dangerous interactions. There's a scene in Spy where McCarthy's character is just, like, verbally beating the shit out of some guy, insulting him left and right, and she says... I'm the person that's going to cut your dick off and glue it to your forehead so you look like a limp dick unicorn. That's who the fuck I am. For some reason, this line just really got me, and I thought it would be a good idea to text this to Calvin as my parting shot. 
he didn't respond to that either. I spent the next two days pretty miserable. I wasn't sleeping great, and even though classes had started up the week before, I had only made passing attempts to try and keep up with the reading. I took a train up to London to see a concert I had bought tickets for weeks earlier, a lifetime ago. I considered bailing, but it seemed that any activity was better than staying in bed for 23 hours a day and crying. My foray into meditation had still left me a little unsatisfied, and during some of my more cogent moments in the days following, I found myself poking around the internet looking for some perspective on heartbreak from Buddhism. And this is how I found Tara Brock. What I had found was a podcast, a recorded talk, the title of which was Loving and Losing. I think I found it by searching for Buddhism and heartbreak or something like that. As I settled in for the one-hour train ride to London, I turned the podcast on. Tara describes herself as a clinical psychologist, meditation teacher, and author. As she began, she said she'd planned a different talk for that day, but then last week, her mother had died. And so she talked about impermanence, referencing a Mary Oliver poem that said, To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. She spoke about her mother's final days, her final trips in nature, but when she got to the final part about letting things go, she said this. We don't have to let go as in, like, it's not like that. In the video of this talk, she makes a pushing away motion. It's more like just opening in an honest way to the reality that things come and go. This idea was strange and new to me. I knew the saying, if you love something, set it free, But the metaphor I had always visualized was of, like, a dove being set free from a cage and immediately flying away, looking back and saying, Christ, so glad to be free of that. What Tara was talking about was something different. It was me not telling Calvin when he had to come or that he had to come, but it also wasn't running away either. She shared a story of a writer who had interviewed a llama in the Himalayas. The Lama had developed really bad arthritis and was now so frail that he couldn't travel from his temple and would remain there for the rest of his life. The writer asked the Lama, how do you feel knowing that you'll never leave? He cries, of course I am happy. It's wonderful, especially when I don't have any choice. There was an embracing of the present moment in a way that I was trying everything I could do to avoid. The talk was about an hour long, which was roughly the length of the train ride between Brighton and London, And as the train wound its way through South London toward the Blackfriars Bridge station, I sobbed into the window. Eleven days since I'd last heard from Calvin, and three days after I'd resolved myself to the fact that he was gone, he texted me. So... I've been busy avoiding this message as I've been trying to change reality. That being, I now have to work this upcoming weekend, so there's no way I can see you. Tragic. Had he just kept quiet, I would have... I don't know. I like to think I would have begun the process of moving on. I wasn't happy, but I hadn't been expecting anything else from him. A different version of me would have let well enough alone. 
But hi. Two days later, on February 10th, I replied, trying to pretend like he'd told me he was going to be late for dinner and hadn't sent me on an emotional tilt-a-whirl. Tragic indeed, though I suppose that's the way it goes when you're working for the man. You got time to talk today or tonight? He didn't respond. Maybe my feelings leaked through too much. Who knows? But the next day, frustrated and hurt and, Jesus, fucking confused, I finally let loose. Hi, I began. So I'm getting the feeling that you are continuing avoiding talking to me, which could easily be 100% in my head, but I got some things I gotta say, and so, well, I'm gonna say them. In WhatsApp. Yes, it's like putting an organ transplant in a beer cooler, but, well, it's what I've got available to me. So here it is. One, I really like you. I believe the term you guys use is, I fancy you. More than is probably reasonable for how long we've known each other, but, well, there it is. That you couldn't come this weekend was disappointing, but would have never made me change my mind about how I was feeling about you. All that gross, vile stuff we were saying, well, I meant it. 2. Having you not talk to me or even just shoot me the occasional text has been really rough. I had no idea how to interpret your silence other than to assume you were over it, over me, or maybe even that you really disliked me. Your text on Tuesday took me totally by surprise, only because I thought you were done. As glad as I am you got in touch, I still don't know what's going on. 3. I would really like to see you again. The kind of connection I felt with you is rare and special, both sexual and social-slash-romantic-slash-whatever. The kiss you gave me as I was taking the picture of Edinburgh Castle, that was one of the most romantic things to happen to me in ages. And the making out-slash-fooling around was also pretty damn special. Plus, you're funny and smart, which helps. So if you have any reciprocal desire to see me, let me know. For if you are indeed over it, please tell me. I know turning someone down is hard, but it's kind, and I'm asking you to do it. If writing the words is too hard, you can just send me a fish or a reptile emoji. And if you say you're done, I'll leave you alone, I promise. No guilt trips, no bitter texts. I don't want to be that guy. Anyway, I hope this isn't too much too fast. If your answer doesn't fit into a simple yes or no, I'm always happy to talk, clearly. Also, because of how WhatsApp works, I'm assuming you can't see the beginning of the message, so scroll up. Barfully yours, Charlie. He never replied, emoji or otherwise. When you're first falling in love, some songs suddenly make sense in a way they never had before. When your heart gets broken, magnetic field songs make sense in a way they never had before. Better and more exhaustive rundowns of the magnetic field 69 love songs exist, but the three that were really burning up my personal charts were All My Little Words, Now that you've made me want to die You tell me that you're unboyfriendable I Don't Want to Get Over You, for obvious reasons. I don't want to get over you I guess I could take a sleeping pill And sleep back well And I'll have to go and Sweet Lovin' Man. There's an of sunshine for a million years of rain But somehow that always seems to be I could go on, and I did. But I was advised that, in podcast form anyway, there might be diminishing returns there. Why do we listen to sad songs when we feel sad? I think a lot of it has to do with something I touched on in season one of Serial Dater, 
which is our inherent human condition of being limited to our own bodies. Just as love can make us feel like we exceed and transcend the limits of our bodies, heartbreak can make us feel even more confined and limited. Meanwhile, everyone around you is going on with their normal, everyday lives like nothing has happened. Happiness must be mustered at people's successes and achievements. Smiles are required at good news. And above all, one must not burst into tears when someone tells you that they've fallen in love. But here, encapsulated in word and sound, is someone who is just as miserable as you, and in a kind of magical way, has crafted that misery into a thing of beauty. Sad beauty, sure, but beauty nonetheless. There's something else here, though, and it gets back to what I was talking about earlier. That feeling of being so demoralized by failures of romance that I'd just as soon no longer be alive. There's something about these singers feeling just as low as me, even singing about their own not wanting to be alive anymore, that made me feel a little less like a freak for having my own feelings like that. Again, it's so tricky because of how dramatic and over-the-top it sounds, but if there's one thing I found over the course of that year, it's that denying that the feelings are there, or are real, does nothing to help them go away. This new intelligence I owe to Tara Brock. I was doing a deep dive on the podcasts, of which there was a seemingly inexhaustible archive, and it was making me feel not better necessarily, but less lost, less despairing, which I suppose is technically feeling better. I found myself avoiding the ones that centered on more ephemeral concepts, prayer and spirit, but consuming with a kind of fever the ones based on psychology and evolution and science. I could go on and on here, but let me pick the three biggest things I got from Tara in those early days. The first was negativity bias, the idea that our evolutionary psychology is conditioned to treat negative events with much more prominence than positive ones. This stems from when, as little critters in the forest, if you ate the red berries and they almost killed you, then you were much more likely to survive if you were terrified of red berries from then on. In modern human psychology, this translates into us being much more susceptible to take criticism and pessimism as truth. For instance, just off the top of my head, Calvin saying, nay, insisting that he was coming to Brighton for Valentine's Day, was nothing in the face of a week of silence. Another idea, related to negativity bias, was the concept of real but not true. It struck me as a more nuanced approach to the thoughts cause suffering line I got at the meditation center, and went something like this. When we're upset or angry or in distress, it's often because we're believing something that isn't true, but that doesn't mean we're not believing it, and denying what we are experiencing doesn't help us move past it. When Calvin went MIA, yes, I was sad, but what made the feelings so scary was that I wasn't just seeing it as one boy who was ghosting, it was all the boys who had ghosted before. I wasn't feeling despair because I had one more to add to the list, I was feeling despair because I thought this was one more sign that I would never find love. The knee-jerk reaction of logic would be, that's ridiculous, but recognizing that these feelings were real, even if they weren't true, somehow made them more manageable. This also led to a third concept that blew my mind, which is the Buddhist idea of the second arrow. Tara explained it this way. So the Buddha described two arrows that, and, and I think this is a really good description of how we get stuck. And the first arrow is the natural experience that we humans have of aggression or greed or craving, just the stuff that arises in, in this human animal that we are. And the second arrow 
is self-aversion for the fact of the first arrow. Okay? So that we, we experience that um, the appearance of whether we're nasty, selfish, greedy, whatever it is, and we don't like ourselves for that. And that's the second arrow. He says, in life we cannot always control the first arrow. However, the second arrow is our reaction to the first. The second arrow is optional. One thing I hadn't even realized I was doing was, as I acknowledged the fleeting nature of my encounter with Calvin, I was giving myself a hard time for getting so carried away with things. And not just a hard time, I was tearing myself to pieces over it. Stop getting so upset, Charlie. You're being ridiculous, Charlie. I felt like Boromir at the end of The Fellowship of the Ring, a quiver full of second arrows sticking out of my chest. Tara wasn't necessarily helping me get out of the hole I had dug myself into, but she was helping me see that it was, in fact, a hole, and not an abyss. She was helping me see that this might, after all, be manageable. Oh shit, I almost forgot. I should probably tell you the little that there is left in the story of Robbie. After I left Dorset, our text game slowed dramatically. On my end, I think the reasons for this are fairly obvious. I was deep in it with Calvin, and my boy bandwidth was mostly taken up. The promise I'd made to myself on my way to Dorset from Glasgow, to try and engage with Robbie earnestly without letting Calvin cloud the picture, looked comic in its optimism. I might have been able to stay open to the possibilities with Robbie on an academic level when things were going well with Calvin, but as things started to go pear-shaped, it became difficult to think about anything else. I did my best to respond to the few messages Robbie shot my way, though, in my defense, there wasn't a lot. After a few low-wattage exchanges, and before things went entirely sideways with Calvin, I'd shot Robbie one last text. So what do you think? Worth it to try and meet up one more time and hope that neither of us becomes incapacitated? At the time, I thought I was being fun, turning our series of unfortunate events into a joke, something we could look back on later and laugh about. But now, it seems a little sardonic, maybe even a little cruel. Whatever it was, he never wrote me back. In the years since, as I've started to gain a little more perspective on the whole year, I wonder if maybe Robbie and I might have been able to make a go of it if it hadn't been for the whirlwind of Calvin. This doesn't account for anything that he might have been dealing with on his end, nor would it have solved the underlying problem of the substantial distance between Brighton and Dorset, or my impending visa expiration. But I had plenty of people tell me in the subsequent months and years that the flashbang fireworks guys, like Calvin, never lasted. And what you needed was the slow boil, the thing that got built over weeks and months. They may very well be right, but I'm not sure anyone has the self-possession for that kind of emotional curation. Certainly I didn't. If nothing else, I wish I'd been in a place where I could have given Robbie more time, more attention, more... anything. Even 
Even as I was developing a kind of new emotional intelligence via mindfulness, meditation and introspection were not the only things I was using to fill the hole in the center of my chest. Sure, I made good use of the pub, but also I started utilizing the hookup apps more than normal. This was definitely a band-aid on a gaping wound, but it gave me something to do. Some of the sex was good, some of it was very, very bad. I even had a few situations that I showed up for which, after surveying the setup, decided to turn around and leave. A few guys I saw more than once, a few I hoped to see again. I thought I might have made a connection with a med student who was visiting from Southampton. What was it about those Dorset boys? But after our single hookup, I was unable to get him to agree to meet up again. In mid-March, a reminder popped up on my calendar that it was time to get my regular STD test. The counselor had a list of questions to ask me, how many partners I had, what kind of intercourse I was having, my sexual orientation. In order to answer the questions, I semi-embarrassingly and semi-proudly made a list of guys, some of whose names I knew and some I did not. There was the Londoner with the striped green underpants who had just been visiting Brighton for the day. There was the Irish guy who got grumpy when he got lost trying to find my house. There was the simply abjectly bad hookup in a nice apartment in the Seven Dials neighborhood. There was the Spanish guy who wore so much awful cologne that I could smell it on my sheets several weeks and several washings after he left. Two weeks later, I got a phone call from the clinic. I did not pass the test with flying colors. The woman on the phone made me an appointment at, wait for it, the Elton John Clinic at the Royal Sussex Hospital. Once there, I got the news that my throat swab had come back with something not super serious, which they would treat right then and there, but that I would need to inform all my sexual partners. I agreed and got a jab and a couple of pills. They told me the meds would probably make me feel fairly crummy for the rest of the day, and so from the clinic I ended up wandering to the movie theater where I bought a ticket for Zoopolis, which is what Zootopia was marketed as in the UK for reasons that nobody has been able to adequately explain to me. I screwed up my courage and started down the list of guys I needed to text. Responses varied from empathetic and considerate to perfunctory to silence. No one was rude, thank God. Of course, there was one message that I was dreading sending, because the first person I had hooked up with after my last test, taken hastily right before Robbie came to Brighton, though we hadn't ended up doing anything, was technically Calvin. Remember that, ahem, brief street fellatio? I knew that statistically the chances of anything having been caught or transmitted in such a brief interaction was minimal, but if I was going to contact everyone, I was going to contact everyone. Hey there, I started, nearly two months after we'd last spoken. So, I have some unfun news to share. I just found out that I had an STD in my throat. Figured I should let you know. Hopefully you're unaffected. Shrug emoticon. My expectation was that it would sail off into the void like so many of my previous messages. Three minutes later, my phone dinged. Bitmat? Calvin replied, as if our ceasing communication previously had been an unfortunate mutual occurrence. I was just thinking about you. In all seriousness. Looks like I wasn't done with him after all next time on Serial Dater. For more information or to find mental health resources in your area, visit the National Alliance for Mental Illness at www.nami.org. And remember, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, to help during times of crisis. You can reach them at 1-800-273-8255, or at www.suicidepreventionlifeline.org. A phone, follow a phone.
If I'm one of them, he's a hot knife. He makes my heart love cinema skulls. We show him a dancing bird of paradise. If I'm butter, if I'm butter. If I'm butter, then he's a hot knife. He makes my heart love cinema skulls. We show him a dancing bird of paradise. He excites me. Must be like the Genesis of rhythm. I get feisty whenever I'm with him. If I'm butter, if Serial Dater is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me. Editorial help from Olivia Wolfgang Smith, Fatih Ahmed, and Anna Marquardt. Music by Tongues. Go buy and listen to their EP, Fight, on Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon Music. For more information, check them out at www.tonguesmusic.com. Calvin, played by Callum Barclay. Robbie, played by Matthew Hall. You can find links to more of their work by heading to our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. There you can also find info, links, and photos related to this episode. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SerialDaterPod. Email us at SerialDaterPodcast at gmail.com. Must be like the genesis of rhythm. I get thirsty whenever I'm with them. You can support Serial Dater by retweeting, reposting, or renting one of those Skywriter planes, or more cost-effectively by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which helps other people find the podcast. You can donate to Serial Dater by going to our homepage and clicking on the donate button in the upper right-hand corner. Special thanks to Tara Brock for giving us permission to use excerpts from her podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and other podcasting platforms. You can find out more about her and her work at www.tarabrock.com. As always, a tip of the hat to the U.S.-U.K. Fulbright Commission, who are hopefully not getting too much indigestion from having inadvertently supported this project. This podcast is a work of memoir. It reflects my present recollection of past events. Some names and characteristics have been changed, some events have been compressed, and some dialogue has been recreated. Um,